Two and a Half Admins, episode 112. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a couple of plugs, Alan. The first one, iX Systems and Clara YouTube video. Yeah, so this is a video I did with iX Systems talking about the era of open source storage being upon us and what that means for you and your enterprise. Okay, and your other plug is an article, your comprehensive guide to FreeBSD's RC. Yeah, so if you've wondered how you control services and manage everything on FreeBSD, this guide walks you through all of that. Right, well, links to both those in the show notes. Let's do some news then. The first one is a Twitter thread from Greg Linares, and this is about a real-world exploit using a drone. I knew that was going to be the second you described it, honestly. Like, real-world drone exploit? I was like, yeah, somebody parked a drone on the roof and connected some stuff to Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, they have quite a few details in here, but apparently it was a, a modified DJI mattress 600 and a DJI Phantom and some kind of modified Wi-Fi pineapple. And the drone just landed and dropped this stuff off. <laughs> and, you know, it carrying cases, something like a Raspberry Pi, several batteries, a GPD Pocket Series mini laptop, a 4G modem, and some other Wi-Fi. And they just kind of hit it beside an HVAC vent and was able to <laughs> sit there and connect to their network and eventually compromise part of their network and get on their Confluence server. For those listeners who might be confused, I believe the typical pronunciation of that is the DGI matrix, as in matrix. Uh, Although these lots seem to have certainly gone to the mattresses with it, so <laughs> who am I to judge? What's interesting is that they used a drone a few days prior at this worker's residence to uh, get some credentials from their Wi-Fi. Yeah, I love just how much of this stuff there was. All the equipment that was just kind of abandoned on this roof, some of it crashed, I have this image of the target just being so completely unaware of this vector and so unprepared to even watch out for it that it's just like a swarm of wasps going around here. They're just airlifting stuff up onto the roof, dropping it, crashing things in. It just It's no problem. Just keep going until something connects. Yeah, the interesting one here is they estimate that the attackers spent at least $15,000 on the equipment that they crashed into the roof, and they don't even know what other equipment maybe they managed to leave with again. If people are willing to spend that much to attack you, it seems like you would probably have some inkling of the idea that you're that kind of a target. Whereas it seems like these were kind of caught unaware of this attack vector. Perhaps even better yet, if you're such a valuable target that your attackers are willing to burn 15 grain of equipment trying to get in, maybe that's an indicator that you shouldn't be relying on simple Wi-Fi security in the first place. Yeah. A lot of organizations that are higher security, the connecting to the Wi-Fi, the only thing that gets you is the ability to then attempt to connect to a VPN endpoint. So rather than relying on Wi-Fi security, which is, is has always been, and I suspect forever more will be, Swiss cheese, uh, you connect to the Wi-Fi just to get a, a physical layer that allows you then to establish a proper VPN tunnel using real certificates and credentials that then gets you access to the actual resources. Yeah, and probably has good two-factor as well, not just you save credentials for your VPN on your laptop. I also saw some speculation that the reason there were two drones up there is they crashed the first one and sent another one up there after it. And I'm just, I'm imagining, you know, street kids after school playing basketball. And, you know, you, you, you make that one bad shot and it like wedges between the hoop and the backboard. So <laughs> then you go get another basketball and chuck it up there after it. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it really depends on the attackers like, some attackers, yeah, they're willing to spend 15 grand on equipment, but they would like the equipment back. Yeah. I remember hearing InfoSec people talk about physical security and lockpicking is a, a big thing there and 
physically securing data centers and stuff, it feels like this is another thing to worry about then. It's not just about people getting in physically. It's people getting on your building or near your building. And it feels like you need surveillance and stuff and more measures to at least detect this kind of attack. That shouldn't come as a big surprise to anybody. If your Wi-Fi extends further than the walls of the building and your Wi-Fi can be used to pivot to a valuable resource, then yes, you have to have physical security of that entire area that somebody could conceivably connect to the Wi-Fi. That includes the roof, that includes the parking lot. And this is not like a completely unknown issue to enterprises. Uh, Parking lots typically are surveilled in high value targets for exactly this reason. Also, you want to know about it and be able to identify an attacker, hopefully, if somebody's seeding the parking lot with, uh, you know, malwared up USB drives. Mm. We've really gotten past the point where you can think about security and just inside and outside the building. So once you're inside, you're allowed to do whatever you want. And I think that's where Jim's point about Wi-Fi is, yeah, the Wi-Fi is going to leak out of the edge of the building. Wi-Fi is kind of weird. The range will change depending on the weather. So it's not easy to say, you know, as long as they're outside the fence of the parking lot, they definitely won't be able to connect to the Wi-Fi. And so what you want is connecting to the Wi-Fi doesn't get you anything. There's another step beyond that that you have to authenticate with. And in this case, it does seem they were able to get enough from somebody working at home and flying a drone around their house in order to simulate being that person when they landed on the roof. And eventually when they found that their confluence was having weird activity, they were like, hey, this one person is logged in from the building and home at the same time. That's probably not right. And they check and that person is actually at home. So how are they in the building as well? And that's also a weird one where in most cases, if you saw that, you know, it was coming from inside the building and remotely, you would assume the remotely is actually the attacker. But in this case, it's, it's no, this is a legit person working at home and somebody pretending to be them sitting on the roof with a bunch of drone equipment. The call is coming from inside the building. Uh, you know, to be fair, we don't know that there wasn't a VPN layer behind the Wi-Fi. It's entirely right. possible because we don't know all of the details here. Since we do know that an employee's home was targeted, it's entirely possible that the attacker first did the drone attack on the employee's home in order to steal the correct VPN credentials to use from the actual building. We, we don't know that for certain. We do know the lack of physical security was the big fail there. And... To Alan's point about not being sure how far the Wi-Fi goes, there is an answer for that. Again, we're not talking about like mom and pop small business in a strip mall somewhere. We're talking about a target valuable enough to burn 15 grand of drone equipment on getting into. Mm -hmm. And if you are a target that valuable, you've got your own campus. Maybe you should be thinking about RF blocking paint and window treatments on the outside. Maybe there should be no Wi-Fi in the parking lot or on the roof. I mean, that is a thing. This is not like a pie-in-the-sky concept, RF blocking paint and window treatments are a thing. You can do that. Yeah, well, it'd be really amusing here. Like, again, just pure speculation, but if they did that on all the outside walls but didn't think that they had to do it on the roof. They do mention that the attacker was spoofing the MAC address of the user from their house, which oddly suggests that that MAC address has some kind of filtering. Yeah, heavily implies MAC filtering on the Wi-Fi rather than proper security. But the weird part of that is... They're filtering on the MAC address of the user when they're at home? Well, it could be a laptop. Yeah, almost certainly a laptop. It's just, it seems weird that their network would even see the MAC address of the user when they're at home. 
Because even over the VPN, you'd usually have the MAC address of the virtual VPN interface on the, the Ethernet packets. Well, if at home they're using a proper view, and this is all wild speculation, but if at home the user has to use a proper VPN to connect, but at work you can just connect to the Wi-Fi and they just use Mac filtering, well, then you know you you hit the user up at home, you you steal the MAC address, the the BSS ID for the user's Wi-Fi card from the laptop while they're at home, and then you can use that to get you past the filtering at the office because you have the stolen BSS ID. You can just clone that and. Uh, Bob's your uncle. And this is why you don't use Mac filtering for anything serious, because it is absolutely trivial to set whatever BSS ID, which is the Wi-Fi equivalent of a Mac, on your hardware. It is not at all difficult. You have to have root on the computer that the interface is in, but that's it. There are a couple of chipsets that will not allow you to do that. The firmware of the chipset won't allow BSS ID spoofing, but those are very uncommon. The vast majority of them, you can literally just tell it, this is the BSS ID I want you to have. Well, and literally, like most phones now will purposely do that and connect to different Wi-Fi networks with different MAC addresses so that it's harder for you to be tracked. Not just different networks with different ones, but they'll randomize it, you know, like every hour on the hour. That drove me nuts when Apple first turned that on with iPhones because one of Janice's friends would come over and, you know, connect to the Wi-Fi. And normally when that happens, my network monitoring intrusion system will be like, hey, new device showed up. And I look at it. I'm like, oh, somebody brought their iPhone over. That's fine. But once Apple turned that on, then like, you know, Janice would bring somebody over during the day and I'd come home and I would literally have 20 different of those. And you wouldn't even be able to tell it's an iPhone because the the spoofed Mac addresses are just random garbage. It's just unknown device. Don't know what it is. And it looks like, you know, it looks like a horde of hackers invaded your house. You're like, what the hell? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. I saw an article on Ars Technica, why big tech shreds millions of storage devices it could reuse. And this was something I was vaguely aware of, but I didn't realize the extent to which a lot of tech companies and cloud companies don't just wipe hard drives. They just shred them because it's just easier for them to do and and less of a compliance risk. It's not just uh, tech and cloud companies either. You know, somebody who does sysadmin stuff on an outsourced basis for a wide array of small businesses, you've got to have a really, really good relationship with most small businesses to get them to allow you to wipe and repurpose used storage hardware. The vast majority of them really, really want discarded drives to be physically destroyed. 
Yeah, well, you know, too many people have heard stories of buying a machine off eBay or something, and it's got all this data on it. And yeah, especially like in the case of cloud providers who consume huge numbers of hard drives and then throw them away and replace them with bigger ones. It's not just their data they're worried about. It's, you know, if we expose someone else's data, the reputational damage to us will be immeasurable and, and massive. And so they're like, you know, it's easier to be sure. It's kind of the opposite axiom of I have for storage is it's cheaper for me to buy more storage than to spend the time to figure out what I can safely delete and then being wrong about that and needing some data back. But in this case, it's like, I need to know absolutely for sure that this is definitely gone and no one can get it back. And if it's razor blades now, that's the only way to be sure. So the article that we're talking about has an interview with somebody who attempted to buy six figures worth of hard drives from a data center that was closing. The data center was like, no, absolutely not. We're, we're shredding them all. And yes, the compliance is absolutely part of it. Wanting to be absolutely certain that data is destroyed. Of course, it's quite possible to wipe the drives and be certain that the data is destroyed. But part of the issue is also it takes a lot longer. You can chuck a drive in a shredder and dispose that drive in literally less than a second. But if you're getting rid of a 12 terabyte drive and you need to make absolutely certain there's no data on it, that takes hours and it takes more complex equipment. There are some ways around that. You know, you can attempt to degauss a drive all in one fell swoop. And that is generally something that can work if you've got an industrial degausser. But then the flip side of that is, unless you then actually hook the drive up to equipment that can attempt to read the drive and find data on it, you don't know for certain that your degausser nailed every sector on the drive and there truly isn't anything there left to get. So there is a significant investment if you as the company that just wants to be rid of the damn drive in the first place. If you're the one that has the big compliance concern, not the person who is taking the drive and would like to resell it onwards and make money from it, now it becomes a big bottleneck to say, we need to be certain that these drives, which are still physically viable, do not have our data on them. That's a bigger deal. And the best answer for that really is not going to be anything to do with uh, wiping the drives. It's probably going to be with, you know, treat them like the storage on phones. Modern phones, the good models anyway, will encrypt your data by default. And when you tell the phone to do a factory reset, rather than formatting the media and, you know, doing a full drive write, which then decreases the endurance of the media, all it actually does is it just gets rid of an encryption key. Because everything was strongly encrypted at rest, once you get rid of that key, you say, well, that's it for that data. Nobody's getting that anymore. And as long as you didn't have a cryptographic vulnerability... That's a safe bet. And you say, okay, now we no longer have the key. We don't have to worry about somebody stealing the data. You can just begin using it and think of it as formatted. And that's probably what data centers would really have to do to be in compliance. But again, that also means that now they have to worry about, all right, what was the algorithm used to encrypt this data? And what happens if we set this up properly, but in the five years that we were using this drive, a cryptographic weakness was discovered are we certain that the algorithm that we use to encrypt the data to begin with is still as secure as it had been, yada, 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 and, you know, on down that path? Yeah, because almost all self-encrypting drives have this ability where you can basically rotate the key, replace it with a different one, and now all the data that was on the drive is just gibberish, and so you can reformat it and, and go ahead and use it. But, you know, there are now, I think, four or five different iterations of that kind of secure erase feature, and some of the early ones are known not to be very good, and so 
yeah, people end up not trusting it like this. And, you know, the other problem that the kind of recycling industry had is in the early days of the tech decommissioning business was very much, you know, man with a van would come and take the stuff and clean it up and recycle it and sell it to people. But the problem was they never had that strong incentive to make sure that every one of those hard drives got the full, you know, many, many hours of D-Ban or whatever to to be in a position to ensure the data is gone. And like you said, the company getting rid of it wants to know for sure before they get rid of it. And you can chuck a lot of drives through a shredder very quickly, but you can only D-Ban so many drives at once on each computer. Although let's be clear, D-Ban is overkill. D-Ban is security kabuki. Everybody's paranoid about the idea that some three-letter agency will be able to do the magic thing and, you know, retrieve some magnetic ghost of data left on a drive that that has been overwritten once. But that's not a thing that anybody's ever confirmed actually happening in the real world. A lot of people have tried and failed. There is no documentation of a successful attack of that nature. If you just overwrite the drive, the data's gone. But you do need to hit every sector on that drive, and that's going to take a long time with a large Rust drive. Yeah, just with a, a PV or DD of uh, Dev0 then. A pattern is better, but yes, Dev0 should work. I would actually use a, a very fast random. You can use OpenSSL as a source of very fast pseudo-random data. It's a little bit more complex than just, you know, PV from like DevUrandom, which is not as fast as storage hardware is. But uh, OpenSSL can absolutely provide you with a stream of garbage that's faster than your storage is, even if it's fast solid state drive. And that is what I would use for something like that. I mean, Dev0 should work, but when it's that easy to just pipe pseudo random garbage all over it, why not? The other thing they got into in the, the source article was the environmental impact of throwing this away. The big takeaway there is that it's the manufacturer part of making the hard drive that is the biggest cost environmentally, like carbon-wise and power usage and so on. And so if the drive has years of useful life left in it, shredding it instead of recycling it does seem like a, a pretty big waste. Well, reusing specifically, because that's, you know, reuse, recycle, you know, it's, it's much better to reuse something. Right, because if you reuse it, you're getting 100% of its life out of it or much closer, whereas recycling, usually you're only getting, you're, you're having to add a bunch more resources in with the recycle to actually get something useful out of it. Even if you assumed that you could actually reclaim 100% of the, you know, rare earths and, and metals and whatnot that are, uh, that are in these drives, which you absolutely cannot, but let's hand wave that and say you reclaim 100% of the raw material, you're absolutely going to burn a ridiculous amount of energy having shredded all that and then needing to melt it all back down and then recreate the actual hardware from scratch. That is a very significant expenditure. I know we're not supposed to do it, but we're going to go back to the car analogy. You know, just uh, imagine that you run a car through a shredder and you separate all the materials and, you know, you literally cast a new engine block and make a new transmission and all the other things and reassemble all of that. Obviously, that's a lot more expensive than just selling the car to the next person. Of course, some companies are paranoid enough to go a step further than this especially the, the ones that deal with really sensitive stuff, they shred the entire computer, like the motherboard and power supply and everything. It's like the power supply can't contain anything. Come on. The motherboard, there's only a little bit of flash on that. Like, why are we shredding the entire computer? Yeah, and the RAM, maybe with this fabled CIA equipment, but like once the power's off, 
the data is gone, right? As long as the power has been off for a while, then yes, I think even the liquid nitrogen CIA stuff only works for a brief amount of time after power off. Yeah, you basically have to hit it with the liquid nitrogen while the equipment is running and pull it and, you know, then try to do whatever you want to do. It's it's not just like, oh, I can come up to this computer that's been turned off for 10 minutes and pull the RAM and spray some nitrogen on it and poof, get data back out. That's not how that works. So why do they shred these entire servers then, which could totally be sold? I mean, the storage, yeah, I get it. For all the reasons we talked about, it would be better to reuse them, but that's where the data is. But the rest of it, it just makes no sense to me. It just makes me angry that they shred these. Well, I I hate to break it to you, Joe, but a lot of the people that make decisions in highly technical companies are not highly technical people, and they don't understand the technology, and they don't particularly care to, and they're just like, well, this is easy. Chuck the damn thing in the shredder and be done with it. Yeah, it's like, that's the lowest risk option. We There's no way people are getting it back after it's gone through the shredder, and so that's the option. And yeah, I think... If you're that paranoid doing that with the hard drives, maybe, but don't do the whole machine because you're just wasting perfectly good hardware. I mean, honestly, I could come up with some answers to that, like scenarios in which, you know, maybe being able to reclaim some of those parts would allow you to pivot to something. Maybe you've got one of those stupid Mac filtering Wi-Fi networks, or, you know, even maybe you've got Mac filtering on your physical network, and you let the machine get out, and somebody harvests a Mac, and you know, now they've defeated that layer of your awesome security. And I could come up with several more scenarios like that, but all of them come down not only to unlikely scenarios, but also to, like, you had to fail at a lot of other things that were a lot more important in your security posture for that to become useful. Yeah, I definitely feel some of this is like the, you know, rotate your password every 60 days type of thing, which we've proven is actively harmful, not helpful. But we get this, you know, like you said, some version of Kabuki Theater and Cargo Cult and a bunch of other concepts all mixed together to just be like, this is this is what you do with a hard drive. You, you got to shred it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in your questions. And as I always say, the shorter the better. Okay, Levi says, It's been said many times on the show that it's generally better to pull backups from machines instead of pushing. But do you have any recommendations on how to pull backups from Windows machines specifically? 
I had a solution working for a while that involved running an SSH server and rsync in WSL, but it's pretty janky, and I'm hoping there's a better way. For a bit more context, I want to pull backups from a Windows 10 PC and save them to a small ARM-based NAS running Ambient Ubuntu on the same home network. I used to also do pull rsync-based backups from Windows. Uh, that was before WSL. At the time, I was using a package called uh, CWRsync, and uh, sometimes I would actually use the full SIGWIN and rsync instead. But that was also janky for different reasons. That was janky because, you know, it was trying to build and, and run software on Windows that really expected to be in a Linux environment. Uh, the only thing that makes running an rsync daemon in WSL and pulling backups from it janky is that Windows still refuses to give you a bridge adapter so that you've got an accessible IP address directly for your Linux VM. So you have to do some really ugly workarounds trying to get from the Windows machine's externally addressable IP address down into the WSL VM, which is not given anything of its own to speak to the outside world with. So unfortunately, I do not have a great answer for that. There's probably some very specific Windows software that does that, that exposes backups to be pulled. But I don't know what it is because at this point in my career, Windows is a thing that I run in virtual machines and I back up the entire virtual machine and never touch Windows itself at all. From my time, the best solution I found was actually Bacula or Berios, I guess, as well. So the Bacula file daemon is a little agent that can run on Windows. And then the director that runs on the machine that's going to do the backups will reach out to that file daemon and say, hey, here's the list of files. Or you send me all the files except for this one's off this exclude list or whatever. And the file daemon will grab all those and start sending them off to the, the storage server. And so that's one way to do the pull. And I, I hope that before too long, especially now that Windows has SSH built in and so on, that that whole SSH WSL stuff will get less janky. I've used the CWRsync thing Jim talked about, although I was mostly using it to deal with recovering a failed external USB hard drive for a family member. And it was just much better than the Windows built-in copy utility, especially at resuming, you know, when you're 500 gigs through a two terabyte drive and have to stop and restart <laughs> and things like that. So it is a little janky, but rsync is still a good solution. But if you have to deal with a lot of Windows machines, Bacula can be quite nice because it gives you this kind of central management and you can have the director, which also has a, an inventory database, which means that you can actually search for files and stuff pretty easily. And it also can store checksums of all the files, which you can use to make like a rudimentary intrusion detection system or, or system file checker that you can run not on the machine that you don't trust, but on the database, or even just, you know, notice when certain system files change when you didn't expect them to. My experience with CWRsync is now very out of date. I mean, it's probably a decade old. The biggest issue that I had with CWRsync is that the version of the SIGWIN1.dll they packaged got kind of stale towards the end, and it had difficulties dealing with long path names under Windows. And like any sysadmin, I come across users who insist on doing like, you know, stream of consciousness file naming where <laughs> yeah. you've got, you know, an a single folder name might very well be 90 characters long. <laughs> so I would end up having to like go download Sigwin and pull the, the newer Sigwin1.dll and, you know, put it where CWRsync would expect to find it. And all that was a big pain in the butt. 
that all may very well be resolved now. If you haven't heard of CWRSync, try it. That may be a better solution for you than running, you know, proper rsync under WSL. Another thing you might try, there's a, I just went Googling right now, and there's another client called AcroSync that didn't exist back then. It looks good from the screenshots on the webpage. I can't recommend it as in I've used it and this is great. This will solve your problem. But if you haven't checked it out, give it a shot. Let us know how that goes. I used CWRSync just like a month ago and it did work properly and in particular dealt with my aunt's stream of consciousness file names, which actually at one point my Samba server refused the path name because it was too long. (laughs) Nice. And so, yeah, I was able to deal with that. And uh, I did have to remember to tell it to set a flag to not copy the ACLs or something because it was giving the wrong ownership to all the files on the new drive. But it did seem to work quite well. So CWR Sync might be the solution to deal with that. The learning curve it had for me was the way you specify the drive letters because it has this weird path. It's not... The normal like Windows Unix compatibility thing of like slash C colon slash or whatever. It was actually something else I forget, but it's in the documentation and it's probably like slash MNT slash C. No, it was something a bit more kooky than that, but not unreasonable. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.